Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm now joined by JJ Bull the Bullard. Hello, JJ. Hello, Joe Devine. It was New Year, a new time for shenanigans. Yes, indeed it was. Uh, Happy New Year to all the uh, the TIFOs out there listening, the TIPOs. Uh, and, uh, of course, also joined... Mm, guten Tag, uh, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's to? Miguel is good, Herr Divine. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. A new year is here, and I'm a new me. We'll be talking uh, today about the several games of football that happened uh, over the festive period. Yes, Chelsea-Liverpool, big game from the Sunday. Uh, Arsenal-Manchester City, that was an exciting one on the Saturday. Of course, there's a little bit of Watford-Spurs too. We're going to look ahead to AFCON, something exciting we'll be covering uh, within the month of January. Perhaps a little bit of transfer talk as well. And hey, Everton-Brighton, big result there too. But for now, if you like to go big or go home, you can do both with The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you'll get all the best footballing stories. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for honestly unrivaled uh, coverage. Go big whilst going home. <laughs> now I'll leave you in the warm hands and the sweet cool embrace of a new year. to Liverpool. Now, uh, this game, of course, Seb, most of the pre-match conversation was set in the backdrop of Lukaku's absence, uh, a, a decision made by uh, Thomas Tuchel. Um, I should stress we're recording this on, on the Monday. It won't be released until the Tuesday. It's possible the story will have updated by then, so we won't spend a long time talking about it. We might come back to discuss that a little bit. Um, I suppose the first thing to say about this game, though, was that, that it was it was great. It was a great game or at least it was a really, really great first half of a game. Yeah, and as a measure of that, about half an hour before kickoff, you texted me to say, will you talk to me during the game so that I can pay attention and sure, that I can yeah. remain engaged? But you didn't really need that in the end. No, um, I didn't. You managed yeah. to stay engaged all by yourself. And it was it's like a sort of a, a hangover of a football match where all the structure has been has sort of dissipated, the players are exhausted, and chaos kind of reigns, and it was all the better for it. But within that... Um, because sometimes within that kind of situation, you can get kind of sloppy football. And we did have mistakes, but there were also amazing moments of expression and skill and things that you don't usually see from players. Like there was a N'Golo Kante uh, through ball where he cut the pass through to um, between the fullback and the centre-back um, to Marcus Alonso early in the second half, which I know we know that uh, Kante is a you know is a, an accomplished attacking player um, as well as all the defensive stuff he does. But you don't see kind of that level of expression from him. And the Kovacic volley, which I don't think I've seen before anywhere. No. Apart from like maybe in the park, like when you're, you know, you're off balance, the ball's kind of falling towards you. You don't really want to run back and readjust. So you just think, I will just hit it and see what happens. Well, this is the thing I was going to ask JJ about this because uh, the the Kovacic goal, of course, from outside of the box, a volley from a ball coming down from the high heavens, JJ. Um, It wasn't normally when you see a goal scored of that, a sort of quality and caliber of the the arc and the, and the pace that the ball travels at. You see a player who sort of mirrors that, but what Kovacic seemed to do was sort of jump with both legs at once <laughs> and then lean backwards and do a kind of half scissor kick 
for this to go into the perfect uh, spot in the goal. I'm not sure I've ever seen technique like that before. Have you? Uh, I can't think if I have seen it. I, it. I think it's just adjusting on the fly. I mean, I'm, it looks like his leg is completely straight. It's like in there's an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer has to wear trousers that are too tight for him and he has to walk like Frankenstein's monster around. And it's a bit like that. So he has to use a full... Uh, what do you like? His the whole leg goes, uh, yes. you know, for the as though it's yeah. at one part. It's like not he doesn't have a knee. Yeah. It has no knee. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was trying He's to kneeless. say. That's like a pendulum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's lovely. It, it's all instinct, it's just, right? Yeah, it's instinct. It's also uh, great core strength. I think this is one of the things. It's to do with like the balance he has to stand on that one leg to do that. Like a lot of things you'll do in yoga or uh, anything that involves your core is going to be standing on one leg. Uh, and he's able to do that, but contain like, the way he hits it is perfect. It's just love. It's perfectly weighted the way he puts it in the net. The poor, the poor goalie. He was playing so well as well. Nothing you can do about that whatsoever. Sure, sure. There we go. Well, of course, you you mentioned uh, Kovacic and Kante there. Seb, one of the impressive things, JJ, about um uh, about Chelsea in this game uh, was their midfield. It, it was a two versus a, a, a effectively Liverpool's three, but they appear to sort of outrun them at all times. And was this just a feature of, of the players in question? Of course, Henderson and Milner uh, were featuring in Liverpool's midfield. Um, or was there something tactically happening here? I mean, both teams, both managers know how the other one's going to play. Uh, there was a change that Tuchel made later on, where he, which he corrected as well. He, I, I can't remember who took off, but he changed with three in midfield and two up top. Yeah, and that small change meant that he didn't have two, uh, a player either side of the centre forward tracking uh, Liverpool's wing backs and they are wing backs really, which meant they had all the width in the side of the pitch. But he, he corrected that by putting Hudson Odoi on and, and trying to change the way they were defending late in the game. But early on, the two like, like, uh, Kanti and Kovacic are really busy players. Liverpool, it's not that we're overrun. They just kept making little errors. I thought it was just little mistakes. They were getting caught in possession quite early. And Chelsea, both teams were pressing really high, very aggressively. They both are playing a really crazily high line. I loved it because it, that's where you get those mistakes from. It makes it more entertaining. It's more like a video game from the early 2000s where it's just end to end. And uh, I think that Henderson was having to clear it a little bit. He's not quite as composed as maybe like Milner or Fabinho. Fabinho's making some weird mistakes getting the ball received uh, when he's not looking maybe quickly enough. Maybe that's a bit of fatigue or something, mental fatigue. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's It'll be tactical. They were, they were trying to snap at them early at the pitch to stop them being able to play through them. But Liverpool were so good. You saw it, and there's a few occasions when they passed through lines with little triangles, which again, Chelsea would have played, like known how to defend against in Liverpool's half. But when you do it really well, it doesn't really matter how well you're coached on it. They're able to go past you sometimes. Yeah. But then you lose the ball in midfield. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. There was a, a commentator made a point um, one moment in the game. It sounds like a rather obvious one. But to say, if Chelsea had Liverpool's front three, then they'd be you know 10-0 ahead. It, it really did feel like that. I, I, you make the point before that there were lots of sloppy midfields for, uh, mistakes from midfield. It did seem, however, though, Seb, every time the ball got to Mohamed Salah, and including for the wonderful goal that he scored, Chelsea were threatened massively. Yeah, I mean, the point about the front three is like, I, I, I don't know, because I felt as if, um, I felt as if Liverpool could have put that game away. Uh, you know, I know, I know Chelsea um, hit them with, with two goals at the end of the first half, but at the beginning of the second, Sadio Mane found himself in a couple of good positions, so did Salah, and there were just a few, a few of those kind of mental mistakes that you associate with fatigue. Uh, I'm not nearly smart enough to explain the link between fatigue and decision-making, but um, it seemed as if a fresher Liverpool front three would have, um, would have capitalised. Uh, but it was interesting. Is, it, is, it, is this you leading me on to talk about Romelu Lukaku? Have I read that right? Or have, no, not no? at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I mean, I... You can salvage that, though. Go on. I believe in you. No, I don't know. But I, I felt like some of those bad decisions were also part of what made this fun because um, you saw, for instance, Liverpool, like, a, you know, Mane getting into space and then almost playing um, in a kind of ad-libbing way. Um, the structure doesn't exist around him. The kind of the Liverpool's patterns of movement around a ball carrier weren't quite what they might be. And it felt a little bit at times as if, um, no Jürgen Klopp, obviously, Pep Linders was in the uh, technical area. Liverpool felt a, li- a little bit like they were on a, on a day out with a substitute teacher because it was very, very fluid and very aggressive yeah. and um, disjointed at times. And it was, it was kind of fun. But then I, I felt maybe as if, you know, they lacked a little bit of efficiency to kill Chelsea off because Chelsea's, I suppose, really Chelsea had maybe 20 good minutes in the, in the game. Didn't feel like they had a lot of thrust through the middle. I think Pulisic scored, but I don't think he had the very best game. Um, yeah, Harvard's a little that. bit frustrating. Um, I thought just on, on, the, um, on the midfield thing, I think that it was really interesting that... Um, that the game kind of was killed stone dead as soon as Jorginho came on. <laughs> it, comes, it comes on, it's just no more fun. It's just, it's just boring. And so this is, this is the point that JJ is referring to, the point at which yeah, exactly. um, Chelsea starts to play a, a, a 5-3-2 or a 3-5-2 instead is when Jorginho is brought on. Doesn't change again until later with Hudson-Odoi and then there's a bit more excitement after that as well. But it did, it felt like... Um, it didn't Someone's feel necessarily like they the were pitch. trying to settle for a draw. It looked like the, the attacking, the substitutions were attacking in nature, but it did have that effect of kind of killing the game a little bit. It's sort of tactical. So it's, it's, it amidst the difference with like, it doesn't matter what your tactics are. Like if you, certain players will change the way your team plays. Mm. And Jorginho gives you control of the midfield. And at that point in the game, when, I mean, it's been absolutely haywire crazy for the, all the way through it. You put your genius on and you can slow things down a little bit, get the extra pass out from the back or get the extra pass in the opposition uh, third so that you don't have to worry so much about turnovers because when your players are tired towards the end of the game, that's when you're more susceptible to being caught in transition. Yeah. And Liverpool what... were missing that with without Thiago as well, which I, I know t- uh, people have differing opinions about him and whether he's able to sort of impact a game in a positive attacking sense. But one of the things that he's certainly uh, brilliant at is slowing the pace of the game down, controlling yeah. it a little bit, making sure that... You know, in some ways, this Liverpool midfield looked like the Liverpool midfield of two seasons ago when they, uh, you know, admittedly were winning the league, but they were doing it with far more turnovers and, you know, far more transitions. Yeah, it was really fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would I'd much prefer this than the... Uh, I thought, I thought I disagree with Seb. I think um, Chelsea were the better team throughout the whole thing. I think Liverpool scored two, not against the run of play, but just managed to score because um, they have uh, probably better individuals up front. Manny's really out of form. He hasn't been the same player for a long time. I think he was doing all the. Like he's he's working hard, and seems to be in the right places. But there's a couple of things when he wasn't reacting to, it, like a ball going across the box, or wasn't quite in the right place at the right time. I think I can't figure out Pulisic. I can't figure like uh, what really he is. Needs to stay fit. I mean, like he, he needs to. Yeah. I uh, just he, he seems fragile. Um, it doesn't seem like he can ever play his way into having that kind of definition. Because I, I agree with you. He's, I he's also playing in two is. different positions regularly, right? He's playing a, a yeah. right wing back for Chelsea, and also occasionally as part of that front three. A little bit of consistency would be useful. You can't really rely. On, I don't think you can rely on him to be consistent, but he can win a game for you. Mm-hmm. There's like, mm-hmm. like he's always capable of a little spark of magic. And the weird thing is that often in like the best teams don't they don't have a lot of players who do that sort of thing because it's too risky. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't remember for instance like a Jose Mourinho team that's ever had a player like that in it because you can't you can't control it. But it also then is often the reason either that you win or lose. <laughs> 
uh, and you'd hope it would be the reason that you win. And there was a couple of times when I think it was maybe Havertz or Pulisic, they'd obviously been coached to press in a certain way to, to when Liverpool are playing out. Again, it's really high and they're trying to show the first ball out to the defender and then they were cutting off the lane back to the goalkeeper and trying to cut the other lanes off. And Liverpool were really good at playing through it. There was a couple of times when I think it was Mount was starting the press and looking around to his left and seeing that the other people hadn't done it, Pulisic and, and Havertz hadn't done exactly what they were supposed to. And that's problematic because then that's a failure of, um, I don't know, is it the individual or the, the coaching of it? I don't know, it must be annoying, very frustrating, I think, for Tuchel to watch that. But uh, yeah, I, th- I thought Chelsea were excellent in this game. I thought they were really unlucky they, to win it. They were good. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, perhaps it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, Seb, but uh, there were a number of chances that they created where you felt, I mean, we mentioned P- Pulisic, he was... Um, you know, he was on the end of three or four uh, chances, some which he'd helped to create, some which he just happened to be there for, that didn't turn into goals. And part of me couldn't help but think if Lukaku was there, they may have scored more. Yeah, I suppose the natural response to that is, yes, I agree. But then also, if Lukaku's playing, Chelsea's system looks a little bit different. Do they create those chances against that Liverpool defence? I don't know. Or do they... Do they um, are they tuned slightly towards his skill set or more towards his skill set? So, yeah, but it was always going to be the elephant in the room no matter what happened in the game. But, like, forget well, Let me that, ask like, you this then. Like, forget about the situation on. specifically. We can't, obviously, as I said, we're recording this on a Monday. The story's probably going to change by the time the podcast goes out. So I'd rather ask a, a slightly different question about Lukaku. Very clearly a fantastic player, uh, elite-level striker, could score, uh, you know, double-figure goals in any top top five league, right? That goes without saying. Is he a Tuchel player? Uh, well, I, I don't know because I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I believe in that kind of definition. Like I think um, part you. of coaching. Well, I, I I just think part of coaching is learning how to adapt or um, using resources in different ways. And uh, he should be a, a Tuchel player because Lukaku will always score goals wherever he goes. Has done. Comes off probably the richest period of his career in Italy. I know it's a different league and a different style of football, and he played in a, a different system. Um, but you have all these really interesting attacking pieces. Many of them are different. We talked about Pulisic, but the obvious ones: Harvards, Mount, um, Ziyech doesn't get mentioned very often. Um, I, I think he's Werner, interesting in a kind of um, sort of slightly more haphazard way, but still provides a lot of pace. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I wonder whether it's a... I wonder whether this is a little bit about age profile because if you think about the group of players that we've just mentioned, particularly Harvitz, Werner uh, and Mount, they're all around the same age. Lukaku is 29 now, I believe. Is he 29? Lukaku's not... Yeah, he's been around and he's been around forever because he, he was... He, he I think he was signed by Chelsea initially 16, when, he was, when he was 16, 17, yeah. um, was uh, at West Brom as a teenager. So he's been scoring goals for a long time. Lukaku is not a long-term four or five-year player for, for Chelsea. He's just not going to be. And so you wonder whether... I don't know. I mean, the, the story will play out, as we said, and it will evolve in the next couple of days. But it seems a little bit like um, a man out of time in more than one way, possibly. But uh, I don't know. I I mean, we, we talk about whether he's a Tuchel player, but I think he's done some pretty good things for Chelsea. He hasn't been a natural fit for the system. I think that's obvious. There have been times when he's been isolated when he's kind of fallen back into that weird sort of um, reductive target man role that he seemed to play sometimes for Manchester United. It's not that he can't do it. It's just it's it's such a it's such a it's such a an obvious way of diluting his impact because that's just one aspect of a, a pretty um, multifaceted skill set. 
Um, but he's had good moments. He scored important goals. Um, he has provided momentum and decent contributions. He was pretty good when he came on at Villa Park. Um, so I don't know. It, it's it's just a it's a very weird story for all, all sorts of reasons. Okay. Uh, one more thing to say, <clears throat> excuse me, about this game before we move on. Uh, a conversation that Seb and I were having at the time, actually. Um, but I'll ask you about this, JJ, because we didn't didn't ask you, and I'm curious to know what you think. Wish I hadn't said it all like that, but I have, and I won't go back. Um, I said to Seb, uh, watching the game, I thought Trent Alexander-Arnold had a bit of a poor game um, at times. I think he, you know, he made a couple of really key passes. He assisted Salah for the goal. Um, he did. He had uh, what I would think of in terms of my experience, as a bit of a Trent Alexander-Arnold game. One or two fantastic moments, and then also like a number of mistakes as well. And it struck me whilst watching that the thing that really sets apart like the proper elite-level players from players who could be that or are just very, very good is that consistency. Bit of a cliche. Uh, but I said that to Seb as Salah scored that near-post goal, which is a goal that he's never, ever going to miss. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's also... He did it with such ease as to make himself look very obviously like the best player in the world. When you stand that next to a player like uh, of, of Trent's uh, ability, you begin to realise the importance that that kind of consistency has, right? And that's what people were always talking about when it came to Ronaldo or Messi or Lewandowski. Uh, I don't think he had a bad game at all. I thought he was one of their better players. Did you really? Yeah. That's very surprising to me. The thing is, though, you're going to give the ball away if you're trying things and you're playing out from the back. Like things like that are going to happen sometimes. Uh, we've talked about this before. We did a video on it. Like there are certain things in his game defensively that do let him down. He's not a bad defender. He is a good defender. But there are certain times when he doesn't go in with the right body positioning, or uh, he's just a bit weak in the tackle because he's basically a very cultured, skillful midfielder who can play that right wing back role because he's got an amazing engine. And just run up and down. He reads the game so well, so he's able to play in defence. Like the most, some of the cleverest players you'll get will play in defence because they read the game so well. They're ahead of the game. But he's most of the time he's in the opposition half as a winger or as an inside forward playing in the half space. Uh, he comes into midfield an awful lot as well. I thought he was decent in this game. There was the, the obvious one earlier where there was a mistake. I think he was get caught and Havertz missed that one v one with the the goalie. When he's put through, you know the one early in the game. Yeah, I can't remember exactly yeah. What it was yeah. I just remember that, that happening. Ha- I remember that happening a few times. I remember thinking as half time approached and saying to Seb, I didn't think he was having a very good game. But I mean, yeah, I, like, I, listen, think you're I, I, I very well might be wrong. Seb, what do you think? Well, I, I felt like my response to him was conditioned by like by how prominent Marcus Alonso was, um, and I know um, I know Chelsea's system probably favoured that. Um, but it felt like Alonso was really the perfect player to... We, we accept like some of the defensive shortcomings in Trent's game because the payoff is is so obviously um, in his favour. Like he's, he's brilliant on the ball and JJ's absolutely right. Like he is there to take risks and he's there to take chances. He's not just there to shovel the ball five yards to his side or back towards centre-halves. Um, but I, I don't think he did a particularly good job against Alonso and Alonso was as good as I've seen him this season. Um so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just that. Maybe it was just a little bit of a bias there. I'm not sure. I, th- I think as well, the thing is, a lot of managers, you always say that teams target um, Alexander-Arnold. I don't know if that's true or not. What they definitely target is the space between him and the centre-back next to him. And because and that's because of positioning, because he plays so high up the pitch. And I think you accept the risk of him doing uh, bad things to give the ball away or little mistakes for all the good that you get out of him. Um a bit like I a sort of Fernandez scenario where you can make those pretty, pretty much, passes yeah. without worry. Like I think Reese James is a much better defender 
But Reece James can play at centre back as well. We're talking about like like English right backs, whatever. I don't know why. I mean, didn't play in this game, obviously. But uh, but look at the difference. As for the is nowhere near as good going forward as Alexander Arnold, who's also playing at this you know similar position ish. It's not quite the same, and the systems are slightly different. But if you've got Alonso, who is a tall guy who can go inside the pitch, likes to get on the end of crosses as well as um, so the, the game plan I thought from Chelsea. Uh, of all the other obvious things, pressing high, whatever, was to keep switching play. This is something that like Aston Villa did when they pumped them. Was it like seven two or something? That's some crazy score last season or whenever the crowds mm. went in. I can't remember yeah. what it was. And Dean Smith was talking about, well, we know the way they play and the way they go back into their defensive shape. You just switch the ball around a lot, and you'll often catch like wing back to wing back. So as Pulisic to Alonso or something. But you've got Pulisic. So Havertz is effectively a false nine, right? He was playing. He goes, goes quite advanced in the press, but then he drops into little slots and fills gaps. When they're in possession, but Pulisic wants to get in behind because he's a really quick player, and sure enough, like he gets in between that space. Uh, Graham Sunes pointed out how Vir- Virgil Van Dijk stays level pretty much with Kanate uh, when Pulisic goes in to score the goal that he scores, um, and doesn't. And Sunes suggested that he should be coming across to tackle him. I, I may, may well be right. I don't know if it's there's varying lines of thought you can have on this. He said it looked kind of lazy to him yeah. as though Van Dijk was just doing that. It looked more to me like he was just trying to hold his position. He probably should have come across to block it, but that's easy by hindsight because you see where Pulisic's going. But there was too much space between uh, Van Dijk and Alexander Arnold in the first place, but Van Dijk's normally the left side of the centre-back. It should be Kanati is there. So it's a little breakdown all over the, the defence. It was kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, back to the original question. Uh, no, I think, it's really, I think that's very interesting. Maybe that this is the case then where I watch a player who... I don't know, loses the ball uh, a few times or doesn't make the tackle I want want them to make. I assume that means they've had a bad game. I can see the light now, JJ. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're back from the break. Uh, Arsenal 1 to Manchester City. Hmm, interesting game. Dogged, dogged by talk of VAR, referee decisions. And, uh, you know, the uh, we'll, we'll get on to talk about the game because Arsenal had a very... Um, a good performance, I thought, and you know, everyone seems to, seems to be the general consensus afterwards, so we can discuss that. Um, something I felt at the time, and I, I tweeted, got a lot of heat on the Twitter uh, on a Saturday, didn't intend this, I just uh, I thought in my mind when Man City got the penalty, I thought, oh, we should just get rid of penalties, because I hate them. I think they're rubbish, uh, often they're not really deserved. Uh, with VAR, I'm not saying don't take my comment as to be a reflection of this specific game because I think you know the incidents were all uh, technically were all accurate, right? But uh, we we all here know that with VAR you can pretty much get a penalty for almost anything, right? If you slow something down enough and look at it, there's there, a no discretion like this theory, here. Joe. But uh, I was thinking about it, and what do you replace it with? Because you can't take away fouls. Well, I don't know. So, 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 yeah, so this, this is this is the next next suggestion, isn't it? The point, I guess, the point I'm making. Look, if someone hacks someone down in, just in front of the six yard box when there's no goalkeeper there, and they're obviously going to score a goal, very clearly, I would say just give them the goal <laughs> for a start. Get rid of the penalty. Just give them a goal, uh, or give them the penalty. That's fine. But in, in, when a penalty is given when you're just in the corner of the 18-yard box and there's a minor indiscretion, which you've had to look at six different camera angles to decide whether it was even a problem or not, 
how is that a penalty? How do you then get in a situation where you have an 80% chance of scoring a goal when there could have been, the context could have been anything. There could have been no one between you and the goal. There could have been 20 players between you and the goal. Like it's not the same scenario each time. And so I think what, what a penalty is given for has to change, particularly when you get like, you get to the byline, the ball's about to go out. So in this instance, the one where Arsenal, uh, Erdegaard's one that wasn't given, uh, Edison comes out and, and makes a tackle towards the ball. He gets the ball. It looks like he also gets the player. Either way, the ball is going out, right? That is not going to be a goal, whether there's a foul or not. If, if Edison doesn't get there, it's not going to be a cross. It's just going out. So how, in what, even if it was a foul, in what world should Arsenal be given an 80% chance of goal immediately after that? It just doesn't make any sense. Like the, the outcome is totally out of whack with the, with the, with the I can't think of the, we don't understand what I'm saying. Someone else talk. Well, you can have some sort of heat map thing where, so that part of the, of the penalty area would be green yeah. as in, as in light. And then it can get more colourful as it goes towards the areas where you're more likely to score. And I bet that'd be really fun to watch on VAR as they dissect which particular pixel the that, ball was in. That would be cool, huh? I'd like that. It would take forever and be even worse than it is when they're looking at whether Odegaard dived or not. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe there should be like a... Um, we could probably do this with uh, computers now. If uh, if you would somehow like uh, make the 18 yard, the entire 18-yard box would be made out of like tech turf, where you could tell exactly where any transgression had uh, had um, had taken place. Uh, and the VAR were there to decide how bad it was out of a scale of one to a hundred. You get the you get the robots to do it. Don't get the real people to do it. And then you you have a thousand different possible scenarios for what a penalty decision could be. Are there players in between you and the shot? Is it indirect? Is it direct? Whereabouts do you take it from? And it's all based on how probable you are to score from wherever that is, based on the probability that you would have scored or created a goal-scoring opportunity from where you were. I think in 10 years' time, with better technology and more data, uh, you know, and that's how we work out XG, right? Like, all through all through the same sorts of means. In 10 years' time, we could do that. We could create... Every penalty would be a sort of unique scenario that would just be decided by a computer. And it would only take 10 seconds, so it wouldn't be this nonsense where you have to wait around for 30 seconds. One of the things that ruined yesterday's game for me, the Chelsea-Man City game, Chelsea-Liverpool uh, game, was how even after the Kovacic goal, for example, they all had to wait. Like, they all celebrated a bit, and then the crowd and the players completely die down for 30 seconds, and then the atmosphere sort of returns. I don't know. Maybe it's like an old man shouting at a cloud, but... Um, yeah, I've got bored there halfway through. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> Thanks for looking so bored. Obviously so bored while I was talking. I um, like On JJ's pixel nightmare, I, what I enjoyed after this game was that um, obviously the, the two different fan bases um, clearly took the footage, slowed it down to a kind of an eighth of its speed. And I saw one Manchester City fan arguing that, in fact, Odegaard had stamped on Edison and should have been red carded. <laughs> And an Arsenal fan saying, no, this is clearly, 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 clearly a penalty. It's the most egregious, like, uh, you know, trip I've ever seen. And it was kind of, it was just so beyond the spirit of the game. That it's ridiculous. It's kind of, it, it just gives, it provides those margins into which kind of fans' um, paranoia and conspiracy just floods um, with devastating effect. But your idea, Joe, so I, I remember watching a, um, a Copper America in, I was a teenager, so it would have been like, 
the 90s. And the whichever country was hosting, the penalty boxes were a different cut of grass. It looked as if before the tournament, they'd all been replaced because maybe six-yard boxes had been worn or, or something. Mm. So you had this kind of distinguishing feature, which probably made IDing penalties and, and, and finding out, obviously, this is pre-VAR and, you know, um, uh, pre-technology uh, of football. Um, so you could do that yeah, a little bit. Just you could have different color. cuts of grass and six-yard box, you know, and sure. kind of the radius around the... Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, forget about all of the, you know, the potential uh, far-flung um, opportunities here. The main reason I bring this up is because, for me, and I know this is a subjective take, after Man City were given the penalty, the game was boring. Like, it was a boring outcome. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. It didn't feel like it was what was deserved based on the patterns of play. Um, most people it, it responded to my tweet accusing me of being a crying Arsenal fan. I understand why that would be the case. I don't support Arsenal. Nail, nail on the head there. Uh, sure. like, I, I mean, don't support <laughs> Arsenal. I don't care what happens. This is the other thing. If Man City come back and win the game, I don't care. I just don't want the penalty to be the reason why. It just makes the game boring. And then what was very interesting to me, JJ, was after that point, everything, you know, all the kind of bullet-pointed uh, drama moments that were discussed after the game were all from that penalty onwards, as if those were the incidents that I was supposed to be impressed or excited by within the game. When what I was actually impressed and excited by was mostly in this in this instance, it happened to be the way that Arsenal were playing before that occurred, before that incident um, completely changed the outcome of the game. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit you screaming at the clouds. Uh, it's uh, it was really I really enjoyed this game from start to finish. I get that the penalty annoys you, but it's just because you didn't want Man City to win. That's, that's why. not honestly. That, secretly that, hate that is them. honestly not why. It's not why. It's, don't lie. It, I, um, but this it, is the pro- This is the problem. When any when anyone has a new idea, someone goes, "Oh, it's because of that," and you're not allowed for it to not be that. I no, couldn't I care less which which of these teams win. I really don't care. I just felt like it. It was just a s- stupid thing. What was the point in this? So I think that that sort of penalty in the game... Say, I thought Arsenal were the better team for ages in this game. I think probably all the way through it, I thought they were so well set up for this and the team worked really hard, had a great shape, um, showed the ball where they wanted it, always wide, then started the press and then won the ball back really well. And they were attacking with like, really good combinations and like like you're saying, patterns of play that were just lovely. Like put that third man run stuff they're doing and there's uh, they're playing the, the progressive pass rather than the short one. It was good, um, but like big teams, like the teams who always win stuff, always get these stupid penalties. They just always do. Like I've, I've watched it for a thousand years in the Scottish Premiership with Rangers and Celtic. Well, it doesn't matter if you're you're the better team. Aberdeen can be what like one nil up, two nil up. You know that at some point they're going to get one of these stupid penalties because it's just built into. Uh, Wouldn't you rather it the, wasn't a thing? World. Well, yeah, but then it just is a thing. I don't know, just, just broken it. over Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, just, just imagine. Of... I know football was, can't like, change. He was so cheerful and happy, and he was the kind of like, he was, there was all this life in him, and now, like, no he's. hope for Aberdeen. He's, he's looking, looking into his eyes. They're just dead. Their life's falling apart. <laughs> just imagine for a moment that things could change. Imagine football where penalties weren't, like, stupid penalties, as you describe them, just weren't a thing. Wouldn't it be better? I know, but there's always someone going to let you down. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> was the City penalty so silly? I mean, I no, understand it wasn't, that... it wasn't. Bernard, not, but I, not really. Bernardo Silva goes down very easily. I understand that. And I would be, I'd be really, really annoyed if that was given against my team. But at the same time, it gets given because um, there's that frame in it where 
the footage stops and everybody in the world can see that Granite Jacker is just needlessly grabbing a shirt. It's a penalty. Like it's, it's a tiny a, bit it, clumsy, but enough to foul him. Yeah, I agree. it's a tax yeah. on his laziness. Like he could, oh, it's just poor defensive technique. Hey, hey, like, and it's, as it, the rules currently stand, hundred percent a penalty. It is. I just wish there were no penalties. I, I I understand, and it's kind of it's a really like from a given the kind of the scale of effect it had or the level of effect it had on the game. I get it. It's a really silly minor offense, but like I don't. I, I'm. I'm it, there's no Tottenham Arsenal thing at work here. I promise. It's just like I. I don't see the. I don't see the raging controversy in it. Oh, there, and, there is um, no raging controversy. No, 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 not at all. Well, I, I've seen sort of petitions and um, oh, yeah, this referee yeah, yeah, must yeah. never officiate ever again because he did this, and it's like, well, no, I sorry, mean, apologies. There, there, there was a raging. Con- <laughs> There was controversy. <laughs> I thought you meant as related to what I was saying. I, the, my, no, my no, thing no, is I'm not. I'm not. Based on um, I, I'm no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not um, biting back at you. I just. It, it's. It's a funny one. It feels like there always has to be a controversy, and whether there is one or not, we're going to make one. And it's. It was a penalty, and it was also a red card. And I have seen the Odegaard uh, Edison incident probably about 20 25 times in slow motion and i still don't really know whether he touched the ball or he didn't and i uh, yeah. if that's the case then it probably shouldn't be a penalty no, for sure, like, I, for sure. I, you know yeah the, um, the one thing that was weird in that game for me um which i suppose added to the arguments about the referee was uh when martinelli misses the open goal you know when he clips the post uh, he takes it too quickly when you look at the you slow down the replay look at where the ref goes <laughs> he runs right in front of him that that was unfair. That's like just that was weird. Why? But it was it was just unfortunate. Also, yeah, like yeah. let's be fair, um, he should still score. Oh, hundred like, um, percent. Yeah. yeah, it's it's he was mildly inconvenienced by the referee if who was trying to get into a good position. It's just a funny situation. Mildly, yeah. But it was it was weird because if you look at it from a certain angle, it's like he is kind of um, it's like he's kind of obstructing him deliberately. He's running. He's changes the the direction of his of his run. There you go. This is not to you know, prolong a long and boring conversation about a. Uh, VAR, but it is interesting, isn't it? You point out there every decision was the correct one, and yet the controversy surrounding those decisions appears greater even than it would have been potentially. Maybe that's a you know rose tinted glasses. Greater even than it might have been without VAR. Uh, the sort of VAR element just extends the conversation. Well, I, I think it's because VAR becomes an event in itself. So when you have the stoppages, and you, you, you spoke about the the Kovacic one. You have moments in which everyone can kind of formulate their own opinions. Everyone gets angry and starts to froth because, uh, well, quite rightly, with Kovacic, because um, the natural energy of the moment drains away because everyone's sitting there going, oh, just, you know, know your place, VAR. This is, you know, I think we all said if that goal came back, the Kovacic one, if 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 that was ruled out, we were all going to turn the telly off. Yeah, it generally was, yeah. Yeah, because I, and it, but it also feels like if, if, if a football game is a is a play and it's divided into different acts, then the VR stoppages become acts in themselves. Mm. There was a, um, I was watching uh, Elche against Granada on Sunday and one of the, I was watching the highlights on Sunday night and um, what the finished goalless, but there was an Elche goal which was disallowed for just a nonsense um, offence. People can go and watch it. But it honestly took five minutes to come to the conclusion, which was incorrect anyway. And within that time, you have the opportunity to harness all of your dislike for what's going on. And it becomes as memorable a moment as your response to a goal or a red card or something that exists within football naturally. And so that's why I think this VAR becomes 
not a tool to adjudicate it. It becomes a prop within the game itself, um, which is very I think very if the goal's amazing, then they shouldn't ever be allowed to go to the robots. It should only be, like, that's, yeah. you know, like the Kovacic one, you're just like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's, like, attacked <laughs> the keeper. It's, it's got to count cause it's so See, good. See, on that note, I keep thinking back to, um, I've, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Florentino Perez and his interview on the eve of the downfall of the Super League, where he floats the possibility that football games could be shorter than 90 minutes, right? And and, he, and, and it's a ridiculous interview, and he talks about it in a, in a ridiculous way. But at the same time, I can't help <laughs> but think, right? Maybe, in a way, maybe he was right. Because since that moment, since the Super League, all I've done is watch football games and and actually think for the first time, how could this be less boring? And this is honestly where the penalties thing comes from, because that just, it's subjective. It may, it may not be the case for, for, for Seb or JJ or for people listening. For me, I find them boring. And if they weren't there, I might enjoy the game more. And I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, not about what is uh, probable or realistic in terms of rule changes or evolution of the game. Uh, but it just strikes me that there's quite a lot about it about most games that are really dull and it's working out whether whether the, the balance of kind of dull is required for the for the for the drama do you know what i mean like the moments of up and down well because the thing that annoys me there is not um it's not the length of the game itself it's when parts of the game get stolen away by things like time wasting or officials failing to add minutes on at the end of games so i, I think we're at end, opposite ends but your your solution isn't to shorten the game because all of your you just condense all of the things that you dislike into a smaller space probably exaggerating their effect I would have thought it's also because your millennial brain has trained you to want things like to be constantly changing sure. and new yeah like you watch donkey videos and terminal will be two minutes some will be four you'll watch them all but like you know you can get instant hits of that lovely little dopamine thing you get or like Twitter everything's changing all the time they're constant stream of information whereas football means you have to watch an entire thing for ages and sometimes not a lot of stuff happens. You think about the highlights of football games. like So you can watch a football game on Twitter now because the goals come up. It doesn't really matter what happens for most of it because you can pretty much guess Liverpool are better than uh, Watford. So they're probably going to have more of the ball. Oh, look, they've scored two. Salah's got two. One of them's really good. So you can consume the goal the, the game that way. I think that's sort of touching on what Perez will be talking about and how younger people consume the game a lot of younger people don't watch football at all they just want, they just play FIFA yeah. I genuinely and this is a lot of uh, this has gone for about five six years I think um, I remember looking at it when I saw it at the Telegraph they, there was um, the guy in charge of the Premier League then whatever his name was Richard generic man uh, him yeah and then uh, they were saying how one of the biggest threats to I guess the Premier League and just football generally is esports and kids coming growing up playing football video games and preferring that to the actual thing because then the players are still relevant because they're real you know, and you have to uh, they have to be real to exist within the game but those games are shorter they're 10 minutes they're 10 minute turnarounds 5 minutes and a half and that's what they're used to whereas then you expect a kid like a child to sit down and watch a whole 90 minutes they're not used to doing that sort of thing yeah. Um, and it's very different. I wonder if that uh, I don't, uh, no for yeah, sure there's I, I think that's 100% true I will say um I think there there is a slight degree of difference. I can read a long, boring book without being as bored, 
you know so i think that there are, there are still there it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that there it engages still you mentally though i guess isn't it yeah there's something to, to, to engage to invent the images it's yourself. not passive football when you watch it at home on the television can be quite passive if you particularly if you're not a fan of either team yeah a good way to do it as well when you're watching is not have your phone on you because then you're looking at that people are always looking on twitter and trying to like say things to be like the sure. funniest or like observe the thing the most it doesn't matter it's twitter who cares i am um, other people shouting into a void because I watch on German Sky, I've got a little bit of a delay. So I'm probably about a minute and a half behind the British footage. So I have to stay off Twitter most of the time. And I've noticed actually my enjoyment of the game and appreciation for it improves dramatically. And yeah, I'm, I'm someone that um, I don't think I could watch enough football during a weekend that, you know, all the week. But um, having the phone there, it kind of puts you in this strange netherworld between the football and between social media where you're not really properly engaged in either and you're not really enjoying either for what they actually are. I think, and it's um, I'm, I, I think I, most people would say the same because that's become a kind of when you're not in the ground itself, and most grounds, four um, G just doesn't work. So you can't do it. Um, when you're not in the ground itself, it's very easy just to um, to kind of disengage with it with what is ultimately like a two dimensional experience. Phones are the problem. I knew it all along. What's really stuck with me about that is about the kind of the, the Super League and some of the arguments that were made against it, particularly those ones about how you engage children and how you, you know, how you find the next generation of fans. Like, at what point does making sure that they can afford to go not come up in the conversation? Yeah, like, or I afford to watch it on TV. Like, well, I, yeah, but this is like, dad's account. It's so expensive. The, the way that people like Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli will, will um, contort themselves to come up with new ideas, and yet they never seem to arrive at... I don't know. How about we make sure that they're exposed to um, the full range of sensory experiences that football offers at a really young age? Because that's what does it for most people. Like, I don't love football because once upon a time I turned on the channel at the, the right time. It was because I got to go to it when it was, you know, you didn't have to remortgage the house to do it. And that's kind of, I'm not saying that all these other um, initiatives aren't worthy and these aren't questions that are worth asking. I just, there's a, there's a hierarchy of questions that you need to ask as a ones with greater priority than others and you know turning it into you know two halves into eight eights and making them all like seven minutes and 45 seconds long you know we can try that but maybe make it affordable first that's well that's where the phrase the game's going is entirely applicable because i mean the money horse has bolted what the hell's a money horse but it's gone right <laughs> the money horse with its many chariots <laughs> of gold right so I, like i mean i used to go to the football with my dad and he bought me like a what would be a i guess a child season ticket because they have cheaper ones at aberdeen which i don't know what it and was this a couple of like, years ago one or two years ago because <laughs> you do have a young face don't you i know uh, for yeah, listeners yeah, at home viewers they might not not realize funny. you're actually 56 years old because you do look <laughs> you do look like a 16 year old boy and um, when you would the football people think it was two children stacked on top of each other is that because you're so tall yeah, four <laughs> children yeah. two like yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but that's, that's the thing so the money right so if uh trying to if i was trying to take someone's child to the football <laughs> right mm. which i'm not doing no, sure uh, it's you can't afford it. It's, it's madness. Even like trying to take like one of my friends wants to go. She wants. She's never been to a football game, the Premier League team. And I was like, well, first of all, you got to sign up to be a member. Like, it's like the closest one to me is probably Arsenal, right? So to go and watch Arsenal, you've got to be a red member unless you go to like a shitty League Cup game. No one cares about that. Not even Arsenal fans. And so, uh, so you have to be a red member, or you get lucky with some rubbish 
game that no one wants to go to, Europa League versus, I don't know, some team from Lithuania or something. And then, so the National Premier League game, you have to be a member, then you have to try and get two memberships because you can't get two tickets next to each other. And then the ticket costs at least 50 quid, probably like 60, 70. It's obscene yeah. uh, for how much it costs, which is just unsustainable. But you can't then go, as like Perez or whoever, can't then go to the, the league committee and say, uh, this might have got a bit out of hand <laughs> about 25 years ago. Maybe we should take this down so we can pay the players less. They'll love that. Um, and let the TV companies make even more money because they'll make the same amount of money that they do and we'll just lower that. And then I, sus- I really suspect the Saudi Arabian government is definitely going to be really on board for uh, lowering all these sorts of bits and pieces. Like you're competing with people who are multi-billionaires from like, all countries around the world competing in the same league and the league is now owned by them. And another thing about the Super League, like this weekend was amazing football. Arsenal Man City was great fun to watch. Chelsea Liverpool was great fun to watch. I would rather it was that every week. <laughs> it was the best. What we've done is we've spent the entire time, it's my fault, talking about stuff which is not actually how good Arsenal were. Sorry, I can see the comments now will be, I can't believe how much they hate Arsenal. They refused to talk about how good they were. So Seb, as a Spurs fan, let me just ask you for two minutes to uh, tell everyone how good Arsenal were in this game and how nice it is to see them not being so bad all the time. It was nice, uh, in inverted commas, to see them not being a victim in this kind of game. Sure. Like I know they lost and I know... Uh, the events which led them to lose have kind of overshadowed everything. But it was really good to see how aggressive they were in the they press. They took it to them. Good to see they them. took it to well, them. Well, yeah, but they, they did. And they attacked with some real personality. They created the best chances in the game. I thought Martinelli had a good game. I thought Lacazette played well. It was really... I, after the game finished, I looked up um, where Arsenal had... Where Arsenal were playing their attacking third passes. There's a lot of activity just in front of the Man City box and the kind of the area... Um, in, inside and in front of the D um, which if you think back a, like a year and a half ago when Arsenal were in that phase where all they did was cross the ball in their kind of their donut of sadness donut of sadness lump the ball into the box headed away cleared don't score any goals um, I know it didn't end well but Arsenal seemed very very potent and hey I'll put it this way uh, Arsenal and Spurs uh, are playing the second North London derby of the season in two weeks time and this worried me so Praise indeed. There you go. Good to worry, Seb. Did we do a second break yet? No. Oh, let's do one now. Ah, returning. Watford nil, uh, one Spurs. Seb, you've written in the plan here that, that Tottenham were fairly unimpressive and slow. Uh, but I, mm. I, I, I thought I remembered reading something about their record since Conte arrived, so I had a quick look. Only one loss since Man United on the 30th of October, and that was, in, of course, in the Europa Conference League. Um, Conte undefeated, basically. Yeah, no, no quibble at all with Antonio Conte's work. I just think that this was one of the games which kind of perfect result because they won it, but it also showed all of their flaws pretty vividly. Uh, Spurs were very, very stale. Uh, their crossing and the final third distribution was really poor and unoriginal. It seemed like uh, it might be one of those fatigue things we talked about earlier where uh, it just kind of drains all the creativity out of you. But at the same time, um, I felt like it exposed, for instance, I'm not sure Emerson Royale is quite the right. It was bought to be a fullback, um, well, bought to be a wingback for Nuno Espirito Santo, is now playing as a different kind of wingback under Antonio Conte. Doesn't seem particularly suited to it. Takes a little bit too long. Good player and a developing one because he's still pretty young, but uh, don't know, don't know, not, not convinced by that. Um, I also think that... Um, Whilst I can make the case for uh, Lucas, Son and Kane playing together as a three, I think one of them has to be sacrificed and it would be Lucas uh, 
for more of a distributor slash playmaker slash someone who can pass the ball reliably into the penalty box because there's just not enough variation to Tottenham's game. Um, and that's going to be a problem. Uh, Conte's doing great work, but he has to. It's like a chef. You've got to give them the right ingredients, don't you? So let's see. Okay, fine. Well, uh, Watford uh, nil in this game. Of course, I think that is now nine uh, out of the 10 games that Ranieri has uh, managed that they've lost. It's looking very, very bad for them. They are hovering just above the relegation zone. There's only about three points, I think, uh, between Norwich and last and uh, and Watford in, in, in 17th, JJ. Um they look like a relegation candidate for sure. Well, they did when they came up. Their team, their squad's not very good. And they, one of their best players was Will Hughes and they sold him. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's much analysis needed. Their, their players aren't very aren't that good. Um, and they are probably going to go down. Great. Well, it was, I really <laughs> and, only brought it up to, uh, to segue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't know that... Um, I, I, okay, Dennis is great, though. Dennis is my segue I, I into think... AFCON, but we'll come back to that. Oh, I thought they played quite well against Spurs. Like they, they lost, yes, and they lost to a really well-delivered free kick and the one really quality moment of attacking play that Spurs put together. Defended quite well. They broke quite well. They broke well enough to cause a few problems. Uh, Josh King might have um, uh, might have scored brought a, a really, really good save from Hugo Lloris um, early in the second half. Uh, might have had a penalty. Shouldn't have had a penalty, but might have done. Um, so I just don't think... I don't think those players are necessarily playing that badly. I just don't think they're quite good enough. Um, and they need, like JD is bang on, like you need someone to replace Will Hughes. I think they need someone. They haven't replaced Akure since he left. Uh, it's been a while now. Um, he's an excellent player, was for Watford, uh, was a talisman there. Um, they need to invest and they need to kind of, um, I think Ren- I don't think Ranieri is doing a bad job. I don't think the answer here is just right bin Ranieri, and because it's Watford and because of their pattern of sackings and hirings, that's what everyone sees will happen next. I think and there's surely the, um, so many different managers, players that they've brought in over time. So there's no coherent. Yeah. It's a real model. It. That's good. Like, so I haven't seen this game, so I don't know what happened. What I would assume would have happened, and you can correct me because I'm very likely to be wrong. But Watford, I'd imagine, played in this like four four two kind of block. And they sat kind of deep, nice and compact, and then tried to break uh, in the spaces behind mm-hmm. the, the 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 wing backs to get balls into the box for two strikers. Is that how it worked? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Right. They were very, very deep. Yeah. And then this is the thing. Like, so like even like you could get. Um, I'm picking them randomly. Shrewsbury, right? See, as far as playing against them, they could do a similar sort of job. It's hard to break down a team in two banks of four who defend well and show the ball wide. Like, if you're professional footballers, you can do that quite well. It's just a. Uh, you rely on that all season. It's very difficult to get more than one point a game on average, and so they're yeah, you're really in trouble. I what, one of the things that did impress me about Watford is one of the features of Conte's time at Chelsea was um, the way that his players would lock their opposition within their own final third. There was just no exit, um, and Spurs had that for about probably an hour. There was a period where they dominated the first half without you know kind of stale domination. Um, but Watford managed to seize a little bit of momentum and a bit of territory and the game became a little bit more even for probably about 15 or 20 minutes in the second half and I thought hey that's good coaching and that's good kind of tactical discipline from players because you've understood what's going wrong you understood that you can't just play like that for 90 minutes but without something going wrong with Kane and so on and you know whoever else Um, it was just it was just unlucky the game plan worked and um, they deserved a point they 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 were due one for, for their performance I just think you have to have a bit more in midfield. It, it, it's kind of simple, I think. Just need to have a bit more ability. 
Um, because I think that gets rid of the uh, the inferiority complex that you can develop as a team. If you know you're not good enough, if you're Norwich um, or if you're Newcastle at the moment or uh, if you're Watford, and if you spend long enough listening to people telling you, well, you're just not good enough, then eventually you play like you're not good enough. You may play to instruction, but eventually uh, it doesn't lead to anywhere good. And I, I feel like Watford could really do with, you know, a small army of reinforcements in January. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, g- good news, I suppose, for Watford is, of course, that uh, that Dennis I- I has not been allowed to go to um, to Afcon. That, Seb, can you explain this to me? There was a strange uh, situation with the, the the notice period. Yeah, it's very, very strange. Um, so this has happened with uh, Dennis. It's also um, as we're recording this, there seems to be a very, very strange situation with Sar as well, who's not going. Uh, Watford are being accused of I don't fully understand the Dennis situation so I'm not going to try and explain it but Watford have been accused um, of disrespecting the tournament um, and prohibiting uh, Saar from being involved um, apologies if that proves not to be correct by tomorrow but that's no I think that's the case I, I, well as far as I'm aware of, as the point where we're recording Nigeria that were, were required to give a, something like 9 or 14 days notice not only to the player that they were going to select him but also to the club and <clears throat> that isn't what they did not do they did not apparently according to Watford notify uh, Watford that they would be uh, selecting him before 14 days and therefore Watford are allowed to not send him, which puts the player in a strange position because it sounds a lot, and Ranieri acknowledges this too, that that uh, Dennis wants to go. <laughs> but he's also in a situation where he doesn't want to let his teammates down. The club have said no. He doesn't want to let the club down. They're obviously in a relegation battle or at least, you know, are in relegation form halfway through the season. Um, it's a really tough spot to be put in, isn't it? Yeah, for the players, it's, it's almost impossible because you can't really win. I, I don't have that much sympathy for Premier League clubs. So... Um, there's a case in Germany, St. Pauli have lost probably their most influential player, Kofi Kire. Um, He's been called up by Ghana. And they're top of the Zweite Bundesliga at the moment. And without him, they're going to suffer. And they're probably going to, uh, well, th- their chance of promotion are um, going to diminish as a result. There's been no complaint. Off he goes with our well wishes. Do the very best you can. Great honor for you. Congratulations. And St. Pauli are a different case. I, I understand that. They are a different type of football club. But as an attitude, I feel like good for you because um, the, the message here is don't put the player in the situation where that has to happen because, like as you said, Joe, you can't win. Like If I have to choose between my club, my employer, and my national team, I lose somehow. And that's not well, fair. Also, if you're Dennis and you're fair. playing for a team, you're a good player and you're playing for a team that are potential relegation candidates and they don't let you go. Mm. I, I mean, if that were me, I'm not saying that Dennis would feel this way, but if I were in that situation, I would question the loyalty that I should have to that team. Maybe I should go and join someone else. You know, I don't know. Am I right in thinking as well that he's not even, he only just got called back into Nigeria squad recently because he's been playing so well. He wasn't really considered. I think that's so right. there's a fair chance he wouldn't even start, which might also help inform everyone's decision. Sure. It is possible. It is possible. But don't get in the way of our anger, JJ. You don't want, don't want be good, realistic. good facts or realism to disrupt uh, what could be the case. Anyway, uh, for more on that, you should read... Um, uh, Adam Leventhal's pieces, uh, The Athletic, Adam Leventhal, of course, being the Watford uh, correspondent for The Athletic, very useful. That's where I found out everything I just said. So if it was wrong, then blame Adam, because it couldn't possibly be me misremembering. It's more likely to be him <laughs> uh, doing a bad job. Um, 
AFCON anyway, though, very exciting. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of AFCON coverage in the podcast uh, over the next uh, few weeks, Seb. Any uh, games in particular or teams in particular that you're looking forward to watching? No, I'm going to watch the whole lot because uh, we, we spoke <laughs> You're going to watch every game? I'm going to try to. Um, wow. So we, we, you called me about this on Boxing Day, I think. Um, yeah, which no better, time for the year before, Well, the year before, you, we actually spoke on Christmas Day, so this was an improvement. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Um, and uh, this led me to find out that the whole thing is being covered on the zone uh, in Germany, which is terrific news. So we're going to try and watch as much as possible for from it and then pick out the things which are interesting and discussion worthy as we go i'm going to go in with no preconceptions which is the best way with a football tournament i think i've got no loyalty to anyone i just want to um watch good football and we will take it from there so we i'm going to do it differently to you i'm going to pick okay. a country and that will be and that's the going team to be that you. I support and then i'll support them as ferociously as i would support any team. what's going to inform that choice what's your i don't know criteria? I, I, if if listeners uh, have any suggestions for me uh, i'd love to be uh, to be tweeted at or uh, in whatever way you can get a message to me tell me which team i should follow i'm curious to know and in, uh, uh, in whatever way you can get a message to me seems like a dangerous way to go with this in whatever way you can <laughs> listen i will accept bribes of course also uh, but no uh, just uh, i don't know I'm, I'm curious if i don't receive enough messages or whatever i'll, I'll just pick one but uh, jj what about you are you going to watch some of the afcon I'm going to watch ones that are on TV. I don't, don't even know what channels. Every single game is on. is on Sky. Oh, amazing. Then, yes, yeah. I'll be watching quite a lot of it. Yeah, that'd there we be great. Go. Exciting stuff. Uh, lots of players will be missing, of course, as well. We've got uh, Sadio Mane, Salah, Ziyech, Keita, Mares. I mean, the list does go on. And Didi and Acho, uh, Traore, Basuma, Ben Rama, of course, who scored a lovely, uh, had, a lo- had a lovely game over the, over the weekend for West Ham. That's not written down here. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to watch. Isn't there a break? Isn't there a Premier League winter break? There's no, not in the same sense as there is in like um, in Italy and Germany. And Scotland. No. Okay. Well, the next. Yes, I guess. Yes, there are some games. You have like you play, there are games teams back have from the eleventh. They have a sort of a staggered break, so it's not a kind of a single period. Like you'll see that oh. different teams play at different times. If you look on um, the fixture list, it's been it's going to be muddled this year because of um, there've been so many postponements, um, unfortunately. And obviously, there are teams that there's I think League Cup semi-finals this week, FA Cup games at the weekend. So it's a break without really being a break. It's a break, but with lots of football matches. Well, okay, there we go. Um, we were going to talk about Everton and Brighton. Uh, I think we've probably run over time a little bit. Brighton, uh, nonetheless, worth saying, still doing well. There we go. We'll get around to it. Uh, JJ, very quickly, uh, Everton, I've, I've, I've read, are interested in signing uh, Rangers. Nathan Pattinson, who is that and what is he good at? He's a young Scottish right back who can play at wing back as well. Uh, I think he's got a couple of caps for Scotland. Might be more now, two or three. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. I think he's going to be a, a really properly good player. Well, Andy really, Robertson good? Uh, potentially. I mean, Robertson's a, Robertson's good for a lot of reasons. like His physical abilities, his stamina, uh, pace, but also his leadership capabilities. Uh, yeah. He's very aggressive. Um, good footballer, Andy Robertson, but he's got more about him. He's like a captain. He is literally the captain of Scotland as well. Patterson is, uh, I think, not uh, appreciated for how skillful he is on the ball. Uh, like he's dead young, but he'll happily like Cruyff turn people on the on the wing, and his crossing is good. Uh, I wouldn't say it's spectacular, but uh, he has all the attributes I think of a really good right back. Scotland really need one, so that's excellent timing that he's come through at the moment. But at Rangers. 
he can't get in the team because their captain is James Tavernier, um, who people might remember he used to play at Newcastle, I think. He was, well, he was certainly a youth team, something like that, wasn't he? I think he was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's the captain of Rangers. Uh, was, I think he's a top scorer in Scotland a couple of years ago because of loads of penalties, which is kind of nuts. And free kicks as well, he's good at those. But, he, you know, he can't really break into the team. And an argument that a lot of Rangers fans I've seen online have said is that um, like Celtic did with Tierney and they, I think they got rid of or stopped playing Izaguirre and they put Tierney in the team and then Tierney because Tierney was just ready to go like he was fully ready and was already basically a leader when he came through and captained them in cup games when he was dead young and then you get more money for them when you sell them you also get the benefit of having a top level uh, fullback who then also gets the benefit of playing at a slightly not easier level because I mean the Premier League is different to the Scottish Premiership but it's a lot of players go from the Premiership to England and are amazing like Kenny McLean's decent um, I'm trying to think of another one on the top of my head right now. Uh, but he's just gone to Crystal Palace. Odson Edwards, right? Is already just a decent player, right? Because you can just tell. Virgil van Dijk, like, he was amazing there and he's amazing there. You can just tell. Whereas weirdly, like Shane Duffy is good in the Premier League, but he was absolutely garbage. One of the worst defenders I've ever seen play in the Premiership, comfortably for Celtic. Uh, that's a weird thing. But Patterson, staying on him. Uh, I, I can't remember what the fee was. I've seen different numbers going about, but it looks like he'd come in and maybe be like their next Seamus Coleman, that sort of player who then can just uh, learn his trade, break into the first team when he's ready, and then gives them like width, pace, um, bit of skill. And if you're young enough to break into the Rangers' first team and play for Scotland, like he's properly can play for Scotland as a starter at that age. I think he's 19, maybe. Uh, you've probably got a good head on you, and that's a good sign. A lot of scouts look for... When they're looking for players, they look for um, players with... Uh, number of starts or number of appearances minutes for example uh, at a certain age and you can just assume they're probably pretty good or they've got the right mentality for it because a lot of what makes a professional footballer or an elite footballer is their mentality so when you talk to people when they're like looking for trying to work out who the next big players are they just look for it, literally just a football manager database but on Wisecout wherever you go for minutes played <laughs> or games and then their age and then you can go and scout those to see well, how come he's got that how come he's got that and that's where you start your little search for he's a, honestly I think he's such a good player it'd be a really cool move for him but he might have been better get a couple of years at Rangers where he can then play every week and go up against Ross County rather than Liverpool you know mm, yeah there we go JJ Bull the bullet there thank you JJ uh, thank you to uh, Seb Stafford Bloor Danka Shun um, thanks, Shen Hedivine. Yes. Uh, thanks to all the, the listeners who j- joining us again for another year, 2022. It's another one, and uh, we hope you've all had a, a lovely festive holiday season. Until next week, when we shall return with Seb Stafford Bloor and Alex Stewart, we bid you adieu. Uh, goodbye, Seb. Goodbye, JJ. Goodbye, listeners. And thanks, as usual, to producers Adonis and Don. Athletic.